Isaiah 53. If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to Isaiah, the 53rd chapter. Again, we're continuing in our series looking at the texts which you hear addressed in Handel's Messiah. We're working through them just as they come, and hopefully some of you have listened to it that may have, maybe new to it, I encourage you if you've not already, and has framed our, our preaching in December over the last number of years. It tends to be, though it doesn't stop at the incarnation, it tends to be a piece of music that we listen to around the time when particular focus is given to the incarnation. So we, last Lord's Day, looked at Isaiah 53, verse 3. In the evening, we were back chapter 50. Verse 6, we come back to the 53rd chapter to look today at verses 4, 5, and 6. Now, this morning will be verses 4 and 5. This evening, we will look at verse 6. Let's read from, if we go back into chapter 52, reading from verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations the kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see. And that which they had not heard shall they consider. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one 
to his own way. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Amen. We'll end the reading at the sixth verse. Let's pray once more, beloved. Gracious God, we acknowledge that there are portions given to us in thy word wherein we feel we stand on holy ground and it would be appropriate for us to remove the shoes from our feet. Here is such a portion when we think of what we've just been singing, one clawed in dust and dirt who is the very Son of God. He who is creator made of the substance of his creation. How can it be? We pray that as we traverse these verses this morning, there would be not by any eloquence of the preacher, for that is vain, but by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, there would be a fresh revelation of Christ. Teach us, Lord, thy ways. Teach us thy gospel. Give us the Holy Spirit both to preach and to receive the word and advance thy kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the struggles we have is to enter in in any meaningful way into the sufferings of the Messiah. What exactly is going on when God takes on flesh and suffers and dies? Who can fully understand what he experienced when he said in Matthew 26, 38, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. What does it mean to be weighed with such sorrow even unto death? Our Savior, the spotless Lamb of God, the innocent child born in Bethlehem was born, according to Galatians 3.13, to be made a curse for us. To be made a curse for us. Some of you know what it is like to suffer in body. Some of you know what that's like for a short space of time. Some injury from which you can recover, but it's painful but it goes away. Others of you know what it's like to suffer with ongoing pain. The Lord Jesus suffered surely in this way, but it was more than that. He was made a curse. Made a curse. Some of you even know what it's like to be deprived of love. To feel what it's like to be deprived of affection. 
but you've never been made a curse. Our Lord Jesus was made a curse. When you think of the incarnation, when you ponder, particularly at this time of the year, God taking flesh, our minds can go to the victory of the empty tomb. We can go forward to the victory of his ascension. We can go forward to his current reign at the Father's right hand. We can go forward to the day when he will come in great power, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our minds can go forward to these expressions of his victory. But what we have born of the womb of Mary was born to be made a curse. The question may arise as we come to this time of year, why be in Isaiah 53? That's the cross. But if you lose sight of the cross when you look at the manger, you lose sight of the purpose. And we should never lose sight of the purpose. Never. Our Lord Jesus suffered. And he suffered outwardly. Of that there's no doubt. But martyrs have suffered outwardly. And many of them have shown far less stress or evidence of stress than our Lord Jesus. They have been divided. They have been burned. They have been boiled. And yet never express some of the language we see our Lord Jesus expressing as he makes his way towards Calvary. They never sweat blood. They never felt like they were going to die before they actually were martyred. But this is the case for Christ. There's something else going on here. And Isaiah 53 gives a little window, but not with the clarity that we might need, but it gives a little window. So as we look at verses 4 and 5 this morning with the Lord's help, I've titled the message, Christ Bearing the Unbearable. And when I say that, I'm not saying that he failed to bear it. I'm trying to add a sense of the weight that this, what he bore, is more than any can bear. And the only reason he bore it and was able to bear it is because you're not simply dealing with humanity. You're dealing with the God-man. You're dealing with a unique person who was able to bear the unbearable because he is both God and man. Look with me then at verse 4 and note with me the him bearing the fruit of the curse, bearing the fruit of the curse. Verse 4a, surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Show us our Savior bearing the curse. First, we might think of it in this way. The curse is expressed through physical suffering. The curse is expressed through physical suffering. Now, we touched on this last week, but it's important for us to see it as we progress. It's still here and it's still in view. Theologians sometimes refer to Christ's suffering 
in terms of his ordinary suffering and his extraordinary suffering. The ordinary suffering are things akin to what we might go through, things that are similar and common to humanity. But extraordinary, the extraordinary is something else. It's the peculiar sufferings of the Lord Jesus as he endures the wrath of God for his people. Verse 4a, in his expression, focuses upon ordinary sufferings, but they're not just ordinary, which is what I want us to see. The word that you have here, surely he hath borne our griefs, is again that same word we saw last week. It has the idea of sickness. And again, not to reiterate what we expressed last time, but there is an emphasis on this. In verse uh, 3 and verse 4, and then the fact that by our stripes we are healed, the sense of, of sickness or physical infirmity that is borne by the Son of God and dealt with by the Son of God in order that we might be healed of it. And you see what the Lord promised to His people Israel in Deuteronomy 7, 15. He said to them, the Lord will take away from thee all sickness, it's the same word, all sickness, and will put none of the evil diseases of Egypt which thou knowest, which thou knowest upon thee, but will lay them upon all them that hate thee. Now, this is stated even though Jews still contracted leprosy and other forms of sickness. They still contracted the sicknesses that would lead to their, their demise and their death. It's not eradicating entirely the experience of sickness, but beloved, there is this sense in which the Lord is helping us see that what He provides for His people does address the fruit of the fall. The word sorrows also is used. He carried our sorrows. as the idea of pain or anguish. It's not just feeling sadness, but the, the anguish that we may be under, depending on circumstances. The same word is used in Exodus 3, when there we are told, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. I know their anguish. What were they going through? It wasn't just what the taskmasters were putting upon them. It was all the compounding experience of that. The anguish, the feeling that there, there will be no relief. This is going to be an indefinite experience until they die. So the curse that you have revealed in verse 4 is expressed through physical suffering. And some of the things we noted last week was first, Christ did not personally experience all the extremity of human disease and sickness. He didn't personally experience. He didn't go through every disease. We, in fact, we read of him, we don't read of him incurring any particular disease or sickness. So it's not that in terms of him bearing our griefs and carrying our sorrows. Those bearing of griefs is not that he had all of that sickness that you might experience or I might experience. But second, we also saw that Christ identified with humanity in its worst of physical conditions. His bearing of sickness is, is seen in the fact that he was near to all forms of sickness. He didn't distance himself. Though he was not stricken by sickness himself, he was engulfed by sickness. Surrounding him was sickness. There are statements in the Gospels that show us that where he was going, he was just completely surrounded, thousands upon thousands, all through the day, constantly pressing upon him bringing upon him all their sick and diseased folk. They were all carrying their loved ones to the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you, if you combine all the wards of a hospital, 
And all the worst experiences that doctors try to address and nurses try to alleviate, he is surrounded by that continually through his ministry. And so he saw it and he smelled it and he touched it. We were singing. We were singing about our Savior and him arising with healing in his wings, speaking of that, that prophetic prophecy. And I was just, just reading, we were singing that line there in, in Wesley's hymn. And I, I was just thinking about it, thinking about him rising with healing in his wings and, and how that was expressed in our Savior's ministry. The idea of healing in his wings is to the extremities of Christ, there's this power to heal. And you see this illustrated beautifully when that woman with the issue of blood, she comes and just touches the hem of his garment. And she believes, she believed that there's healing in his wings. Even the extremities of his person, even there, there's healing. And that's what she found. She found that by faith she would be healed. There's a wonderful way in which our Lord was surrounded by sickness, engulfed by sickness, and the worst of the experiences of men. But we also saw last week Christ identified with humanity in its even worse spiritual condition. Because we looked briefly at Isaiah 1, and we saw how Israel is depicted as having sickness and disease, wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, and this is tied to their spiritual condition. It's tied to their ongoing unbelief and rejection of God. They stand in this place unforgiven, and he goes on then to express to, to, to come, to, 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 to come that they might have all these sins cleansed and washed away. This is really the ministry of Isaiah Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Now, when we come to verse 4 of Isaiah 53, we have to keep in mind, if we're to understand what it means, how it is used, if it is used, in the New Testament. And it is. Go to Matthew 8. Turn to Matthew 8. I don't have time to give all the context here, but if you run your eye down through chapter 8, you will see in verses 1 through 4, Christ cleansing a leper. Verses 5 through 13, he heals the centurion's servant. Verses 14 and 15, he raises up Peter's mother-in-law. Then in verse 16, we're told, when the even was come, they brought unto him, here's what I was talking about, one of these ex, kind of all-encompassing expressions, that Matthew putting his arms around all that's going on, trying to deal with it in, in brief language. They brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word, and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, himself took our infirmities, and bear our sicknesses. So do you see what I'm saying in terms of there being an expression of this, a real expression of this, this in the physical? There's no denying, there's no skipping over it. When the Messiah comes, he is expected to deal with the physical infirmities. Now, 
found among the charismatics, they will read Isaiah 53, look at Matthew 8. Their argument will be that bound up in the atoning work of Jesus, him taking the place of a substitute on behalf of men and women and dying there, and all that is involved in that buys for us not just our justification, but healing in the body. Now, if you've come across that idea, <clears throat> I want you to remember four things. First, if the atonement assured us of healing in this life, we would never die. If you come across it, just keep that in mind. If the atonement assures us of healing in this life, we would never die. Second, if the atonement assured us of healing in this life, we should expect not only our cancer to be healed, or anything equivalent to that, but no vision or hearing loss, no graying hair or baldness. These are other deficiencies in us. They're signs of malfunctioning biological functions, whatever, they're not working the way they should. Those things would be eradicated as well. It's always interesting to see. I wasn't <laughs> intending to say that, but this, it illustrates the point. We, we lived in a, a little apartment in Tasmania, and very nice landlady, but I, I did have this one thing with her because she went to a charismatic church, and she would push this idea of healing especially in light of the fact that I was there because the pastor of the church wasn't well. And she had expressed, why don't you just pray for healing for him? And <laughs> sure, and he was prayed for, of that there's no doubt. But in her mind was like, and the church she went to, I saw some of its advertising. I mean, this is extreme charismatic ideas anyway. She, she, had, she had severe hearing loss, severe hearing loss. She could just about, with AIDS, she could just about understand what you were saying to her. If you raised your voice and you spoke clearly, just about. And she had glasses. And you, you can't help but see the disconnect. Well, you immediately, well, just all these things will go away. And I'm looking and thinking, what about your sight? What about your hearing? You know, you live on with these things. Why don't just pray and it'll go away? So when you see the faith healer come into Greenville saying that he can heal all these things and he's wearing glasses, just, <laughs> just query, query what it is he's trying to sell you. Third, if the atonement assured us of healing in this life and it was dependent on the measure of our faith, right, because that's what they'll say. You just have to believe enough. You have to believe enough. Then the salvation of our souls is as precarious as the healing of our body. Because if you tie it together, that there's the atonement put forth for man. I believe and I am justified. I believe and I am healed. If I don't receive healing in the body in the way I expect, the question then would be raised, how do I know I'm justified? If the atonement in its equivalent form in time in this experience should be equivalent, not just justifying, but dealing with my sickness. Then if I find myself sick, am I no longer saved? Fourth, if the atonement assured us of healing in this life, there are a number of New Testament believers who missed out on that blessing. 
And I'll not go there for the sake of time, but you will find them without too much trouble. Of course, on the other side, the non-charismatics, those of our own theological color and persuasion, can at times overstate our focus on the atonement as if there's no dealing with the body at all. Now, when you look at verse 4, when you go back to Isaiah 53, and you keep in mind Matthew 8, where it's a saying that was fulfilled, this is being fulfilled, all these people being delivered. And I, I would love, I'd love, I, you know, I was reading this, verse 16 of Matthew 6, um, Matthew 8, verse 16, I see, with, with his word. That was it. With his word. It's powerful, isn't it? With his word. Just the way he made the world. God said, let there be light. It's the same one. With his word, sickness disappears from his presence. So you go back to Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he hath borne our griefs, our sicknesses, and carried our sorrows, our anguish, Surely, surely this is the case. We need to remember a couple of things. First, this represents, this text represents his power to forgive sin. But this is combined, it's connected. Remember, in Matthew 9, it's given in Mark's account as well, Matthew 9, 5. For whether it's easier to say thy sins be forgiven thee or to say arise and walk, but that ye may know the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go on to thine house. And he arose and departed to his house. You see, sickness is a result of sin. And Christ can equip, in an equal way, he can grant forgiveness of sin, and he can eradicate the fruit of sin as well. With a word. And so they're pulled together in his ministry so that there's not a disconnect. He's not just come in the social cause to make people's lives better here and now. It is meant to see his power. And that's what the Pharisees couldn't miss or failed to see. And that's what he's highlighting. Having the power to just dismiss sickness like this indicates I am the son of man. I am the Messiah. Come to grant forgiveness for sin. Taking away sickness shows his intent and ability to address the root cause. Second, it points towards Christ's power to bring into effect an experience where sin and its effects are no more. You see in him a power so that when he makes a promise, he makes a promise, these things will be no more. We see that he has the power to bring that to pass. As Canaan pointed to a promised heavenly land. So Christ's healing ministry points to a glorified resurrection body. Abraham believed and trusted God will give a land. But when you read Hebrews, you recognize Abraham did not stop simply looking at Canaan. He looked beyond. He sought for a city which hath foundations whose builder and maker is God. He looked beyond. This is just a type. This is just foreshadowing. This is prefiguring. It is giving an indication of what awaits us. And so when we look at Christ and his ministry healing, it gives indication of what awaits those who trust in him. Every one of them, 
every one of them, their vile body will be fashioned like unto his glorious body. And all those sicknesses will be a best of memory. So, the curse is expressed through physical suffering. There are many lessons for us to learn. But the curse is born through incarnate sympathy. The curse is born through incarnate sympathy. Surely he hath borne our griefs, our sicknesses, and carried our sorrows. Part of what we have learned so far in Hebrews in our series through that epistle is that the high priest must be from among the people so that he might know how to show compassion to the ignorant and so on. Now, boys and girls, keep this in mind. When you're looking, when you're looking at the Lord Jesus, boys and girls, when you're thinking of him, you think of him in two ways. And if you learn your catechism, you'll see this. You have Jesus in terms of his humiliation and his exaltation. Humiliation and exaltation. What Isaiah, at least in this part, is dealing with is his humiliation. It's this, this period of suffering and lowness where the Son of God comes and bears this low experience. And as part of his humiliation, our Savior took our humanity. He takes our nature and became subject to the experiences of a world under the curse and subjected himself to the law. So here you have God distinct from our experience, takes our humanity that he might enter into the sorrows and what it's like to live through the curse and he is engulfed by all the sorrows of what is going on. Gerhardus Voss, theologian of, well, probably roughly 100 years ago, a little less when he passed away, he says this, it appears from his circumcision that Christ, as concerning the requirement of the law, subjected himself not only subsequently, but from the beginning. So what he's saying is, by seeing him circumcised, we see that subjection to the law from the earliest days. It's not just seeing him being subjected to it in the future, when, for example, he's baptized by John the Baptist. That is not kept back to then. He is entering into this requirement and subjecting, subjecting himself from the beginning to the law. And he goes on to say, and it is rightly observed that the blood of the Savior's circumcision is as much atoning blood for us as the blood shed on Golgotha. Now his argument for that is because it it was demanded of him that he obey everything. And in that meeting of the demand, in that submission to the law, even the blood he sheds in a circumcision is in itself of atoning because if he hadn't done it, the failure of that one thing would have meant we have no sufficient redeemer to stand in our place. So he enters into all of it. Now, there's no doubt that the degree of his suffering intensified as he conducts his ministry, and it has peaks of intensity, such as his 40 days of temptation in the wilderness. But he stands in this place of experiencing. That's, that's what Isaiah is touching upon. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Here we are seeing 
Jehovah's servant, Jehovah's servant, bearing all, feeling all, entering into all that we live under and live through. You don't just stand and say, I can save them all from a distance. Like some kind of monastic experience of the Son of God who can save us from being out, away from where everyone else lives. He comes right into this experience of the curse in this fallen world. Secondly, bearing the sin of the world. Not only bearing the fruit of the curse, we see him bearing the sin of the world. Verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Four descriptions of suffering are given here. Wounded, bruised, chastised, stripes. Each one of them horrific. Horrific. Wounded. Ideas pierced. Pierced through. Bruised. Senses being crushed. Crushed. Chastisement. Like what Pilate did to him. Tearing him up. And the stripes that were laid upon him. What are they for? What's all of this for? Negatively? You're told two things. Transgressions and iniquities. Positively, they obtain peace and healing. Peace and healing. He is bearing the sin of the world. Wounded for our transgressions. Bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. This is not fatherly discipline. This is not blind calamity. This leaves you with one other option. Penal justice. Penal justice. What the prophet reveals in verse 5 is penal justice. The language Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. He delivers us. How? You know the language of Romans 3. Christ was set forth to be a propitiation in order that God might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. God maintaining his justice in justifying the ungodly. Now, there are a few thoughts I want to leave with you as you think of this. First, this is evidence of grace. This is evidence of grace. Some have questioned whether Christ's work as a substitute is actually bending justice. Is this not a bending of justice? Why isn't that you suffer 
for your sin? Why is it not that I suffer for my sin? Is there not some bending of justice here? And the answer to that question is both yes and no. That God would permit Christ to stand in the place of a sinner is a kind of, and I use this word carefully, relaxation. Not relaxing demands, but allowing for a substitute. John Owen, in his famous work, The Death of Death, which I commend to everyone, if you want to get more of an understanding of the significance of the cross, it will help you immensely. The Death of Death, in that work, and you may find it slow reading, but it's worth it. He says this, God is considered as the supreme Lord and governor of all, the only lawgiver, who alone had power so far to relax his own law as to have the name of a surety put into the obligation which before was not there, and then to require the whole debt of that surety, end quote. To relax his own law, not in the sense of relaxing the punishment, but in shifting where it ought to go. This gracious allowance in which while there's no reduction of punishment, there is a shift in the direction of the punishment. And in that sense, you can say there's a certain relaxing. No reduction in punishment, but a shift in its direction. And that's what I say. This is evidence of grace. When you read verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. There is no questioning of the existence of grace. It's proclaimed clearly that God graciously would make provision for those under the curse and bondage of their own sin and iniquity. He makes provision. He doesn't have to. If you're here this morning with a sense of entitlement, imagining that in some way God was obligated, obligated to look at you and say, oh, I must come. There's something in me for justice to be expressed, that I have to come and remove you from your justice. That's not the case. Millions upon millions upon millions will bear that judgment and justice in the covenant of redemption when given to Christ are a people. It is then, as we see in verse 10, able to be said, it pleased the Lord to bruise him and put him to grief in order that we might be delivered. But that is grace. Grace. It is grace that looks and sees the plight of men and women and boys and girls. It says, I will provide. You can make it very personal. He was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities. Oh, beloved, don't, don't lose it. Don't lose it through this time of the year. Don't lose that right there in Bethlehem is the fulfillment of an eternal plan. It's part of the Son of God and His willingness to be humbled, be obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, in order that you might go free, that he might satisfy what the law demands, that he might say, 
You have peace. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Pardon fully. This is evidence of grace. Also, this is proof of Christ's divine person. It's proof of Christ's divine person. How did Christ suffer our punishment in a temporary way when we are meant to suffer eternally? He is wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. He is bearing what we ought to bear. We should bear it forever. He bears it temporarily. How so? There can't be any other explanation but in who it is that becomes the substitute, who it is that stands in our place. The Puritan Thomas Manton puts it this way, Christ was such an excellent person that he could not only undergo infinite wrath, listen, but get above it. Christ could set himself free by his own power. The scriptures hint this answer in that expression, Acts 2.24, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible he should be holding of it. He goes on to say those curses that would have continued upon him forever and ever, Christ conquered by the power of his Godhead, for he was to suffer triumphantly. So when you see one taking your place and able to quench the wrath of God that should abide on men forever. You see, you're dealing not with an ordinary man. This is the God man. This is why Thomas falls down. He has served him as God made flesh and he had seen him and known that he died on that cross and he was laid in that tomb and his heart sunk because it appeared that his God had died. When he sees that risen body and those wounds and the living, breathing Son of God in our flesh, having died, he falls down. My Lord, and my God. This is no ordinary person. If you read verse 5, this is evidence of grace. This is proof of Christ's divine person. Thirdly, this is depicted in communion. It's depicted in communion, isn't it? We not to see this. Our Savior. Wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Who, who is it that he's dying for? Who is the our transgressions, our iniquities? Now, the language is put, Isaiah expresses it as a Jew, as a seed of Abraham believing and saying this is who he has done it for our Messiah suffering for us. Well, maybe we might come to the conclusion, well, he's, he's, only, he's only the Messiah of the Jew. 
How do you know? How do you know that this is for you? You know it because of what he said when he instituted the Lord's table. Now you may talk about Christ dying for the sheep, John 10. You might talk in terms of language of the elect. But when we participate in the Lord's Supper, our Lord instituted it, Luke twenty two nineteen. We're told he gave unto them saying, this is my body which is given for you. It's given for you. And then all Jew and Gentile who sit at that table, as Paul goes and establishes churches and teaches them the blessings and the privilege of the ordinance of the, the Lord's table, they're having the same thing communi communicated to them. This is given for you. This is broken for you. Now people partake of the Lord's table and they're not saved. That certainly is, is true. But we're meant to we're meant to participate believing, aren't we? It's for me. He was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities. Thirdly, we see him bearing the ingratitude of men. Not only bearing the fruit of the curse or the sins of the world, but the ingratitude of men. The second part, verse 4. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. This is the sad observation <clears throat> where the prophet, speaking for the nation, prophetically depicts this experience in which this is how we view it. We view him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Some have read this language in the way that God, the way they view God smiting someone with leprosy. And you'll know that. You, you go through the, the New Testament, you'll see how the Jews looked at certain types of physical calamity. You have it in John 9 with the man who's blind from birth and he's treated in this way as if God's smitten him because of some sin. The question comes from the, the disciples who did sin, this man or his parents. That was, an, that was just assumed. And if someone had leprosy, the same idea, he must have done something to be smitten with, with this disease. This is how they viewed the Lord Jesus in his suffering. We did esteem him. We believed him to be stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. As if he was under some particular judgment. He was guilty of some great crime. Now Jesus challenges this. He challenges this assumption. Before the ingratitude of the Jews, he challenges in John 8, 46. Before his enemies, he asks them, which of you convinceth me of sin? He doesn't ask them, What's your charge? Because they had many charges. There were charges they brought. They called him out to be a deceiver, a glutton, a devil, and many other things, some of which we looked at last week. But none of that had any evidence. It had no foundation, no, no persuasion in it. And as they make their accusations against the Lord Jesus Christ and they, they enter into this belief, he is, he is stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He is under some divine judgment. He's an evil man. 
This gets publicly denounced by someone who was not in our Savior's corner. Three times, the governor of Rome, Pilate, makes it plain. There is no fault in this man. Find that in Luke 23. Luke 23, verse 4. Then said Pilate to the chief priests and to the people, I find no fault in this man. Again, verse 14. Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people. And behold, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man, touching those things whereof ye accuse him. Then again, verse 22. He said unto them the third time, Why, what evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. Pilate couldn't find anything. Nothing. Pilate, I mean, this is not someone who is new to the job. Pilate, who was a little green, not very accustomed to the harshness of leading. This this is a battle-hardened, shrewd governor of Rome. We know that from Luke 13 and how he treated the Galileans and went in there because of their uprising. This man will not hesitate for a second to floor any opposition to the empire. Anyone who is truly guilty of any troublemaking or issue, not hesitate for a second. And here he has a man before him accused from all, again, all the the political leaders, the, the religious leaders, all the kind of clout of Israel are coming and saying, this man is worthy of death. He examines him. He looks at all the issues. He doesn't want an upstart. Even if there's a possibility that this man could cause any trouble, he'd be quite willing to put him to death. But upon examination, nothing. I don't find anything. Not a thing. And oh, what a glorious, glorious elucidation of what is going on here in Isaiah 53. Because it is not for his own crimes that Christ is dying. It is not for his own transgressions and iniquities. It is ours. What Pilate sees as sinless, the Father sees bearing guilt as imputed to Christ's account are your sins and mine. So, when they declared that he was smitten of God, there was truth to that, but not in the way they thought. This is such a mercy. These people stood here, seeing all these miracles seeing lives transformed. Again, put yourself there. Put yourself in that scene. Those those months and years of this traversing of the Lord Jesus through the community. See the relief he brought in every community. See those that had to change their jobs because they had to care for a sick and dying loved one. They couldn't go out and work as many hours because this loved one needs care. And so they begin to suffer even economically because of the practical care needed for that loved one. See then how Jesus comes in and with a touch heals them. 
and solves all the knock-on problems that were experienced in that family. You could multiply the scenarios. Multiply them of how Jesus with a touch didn't give just relief to the person healed, but to everyone within their circle of friends and family. Transformed. Communities transformed. Yet still with their blindness, they could not see why. They refused to believe they needed their God to die for them. We be of Abraham's seed. That's like you saying, I'm a Presbyterian. I'm fine. No. No. I'm reformed. And I'm American. So I'm good. By what measurement? What is your answer? Why are you a child of God? What gives you the right to know that when you die, it's absent from the body, present with the Lord? How do you know? What are you depending in and upon? Jews couldn't see it. They refused to believe they needed their God to die for them. They refused to believe Christ was the God-man who died for them. And so, what, what condemns the unbelieving consoles the believing, doesn't it? They looked at him as if he'd been smitten and they derided him. We look at him and see him smitten and we praise him. We rejoice in it. Lamb of God, wounded for me. Wounded for me. Cry of dereliction on the cross because he suffers the dereliction of hell. Experiences The removal of all of the divine favor. The absence of any sense of mercy. Absolute spiritual darkness engulfs him. Do you believe it? You believe he did it for you? you? Say, preacher, maybe, maybe I'm not meant to believe. Maybe God hasn't. Maybe he doesn't want me to believe. Nonsense. Nonsense. Look at the Bible. Look at its invitations. It's calling you to believe. Even if, even if you could. And you can't, but if you could, look and see, I'm not chosen in Christ. Even then, I'd still say to you, believe, man. Believe. Believe the way Abraham was told by God to go and offer his son, Isaac, even though God did not intend to put him to death. But Abraham went there believing it. He believed his son had to be offered. Because that's what God called him to do. That's the command. The command said, go and offer your son. So Abraham went and did it. 
Had he known that God was going to relieve him, maybe he would have stayed at home. But he obeyed the command, go and offer your son. And the command of Scripture is everywhere. The command of Scripture is everywhere. Believe, 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 believe. Whosoever believe, all may believe. Come, come, believe. Everyone, anyone, believe. That is the resounding clarion invitation that echoes from Scripture from beginning to end. Believe. Have you believed? Have you? Boys and girls, have you believed? Adults, have you believed? Have you? Can you say, when you look at this text, he was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities. He was afflicted. He was chastened in order to get my peace. His stripes and bruises laid on him in order that I might be healed. Come. Come. For all things are now ready. Let's bow together in prayer. Emmanuel has come. Rejoice. God with us. Given the name Jesus because he should save his people from their sins. Oh, friends, everyone, all of you, I bid you believe. Believe with all your heart. And if you do believe, believe more. <laughs> don't, don't, don't hesitate. Don't Allow any shadowy unbelief to creep in to your soul. He is more willing to receive you and save you than you're willing to be saved. Oh, what love, what wondrous love, the love of God to me that brought my Savior from above to die in Calvary. Believe it. Lord, how we thank Thee for these reminders of the great end for which Christ came, bearing what we dare not bear, the judgment, the curse, the wrath of God. How we bless thee for thy pardon and thy mercy. Oh, we will never tire of the old, old story. We will never get fed up knowing the blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin. We're never weary of hearing it and singing about it. And we're going to go to heaven and we're going to sing about it. And to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. We're going to join with an innumerable multitude from every tribe and tongue and people and rejoice in the Lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. Wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. We bless thee with all our hearts for such a full, free provision of mercy. Oh, make our song more clear as we praise thee for thy goodness. Bless this people with joy and much rejoicing. Give them a greater sense of their forgiveness 
And should there be any holding on, holding out, not believing, not committing, not trusting, dear God, open their blinded eyes. Open their blinded eyes. There's some children here maybe yet to believe. Gracious God, help them. Help them see it's for them. It's for them, though they be four or five or six or seven or eight or nine. It's for them. And God, I pray they may come and believe Jesus died for them. Hear and answer our prayers. By the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit, with all the people of God now and evermore. Amen.